Good morning, everybody. Thank you, choir, praise team and band. Uh, If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Acts 28. We're going to read the last section of Acts together this morning as we continue in worship. The leaders in Rome speaking to Paul. We would like to hear from you what you think. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. After they had set a date to meet with Paul, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, some were convinced by what he said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other. And as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing. They've shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes or listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. He lived there two years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Choir, thank you. So this morning, we are going to close out the book of Acts. And uh, we've been in this book of Acts for like a couple of years, right? It's been a minute. Most of all the summer, at least, and maybe a little bit of the end of the spring. So today, I always feel this way. When we have a very long set of teachings, especially when we go through an entire book in the Bible, as we get to the end, I have this moment of, oh my goodness, We've been in this for so long. I'm just, I'm ready for the next thing. And at the same time, as we get to the end of a book, I think with great sadness uh, of letting it move on as we move to the next space. But before we move on today, we are going to talk about the book of Acts one more time. And what we're going to do is we are going to do a quick overview, quick overview. Where's the staff and pastors who threaten me if it's not a quick overview of the book of Acts? And what I want you to do is I want you to get a conversation going with me this morning. We're going to do a little bit of question and answer. So if you've been with us any time through the last couple of months, you've heard at least one or, or multiple sermons. If you've ever engaged with the book of Acts, then you have some kind of working knowledge of what's happening in this book. And I would love for you to write down a question. You might write down a thought, something that's come to you over these last few weeks. It's been this just moment Uh, as God's spirit has spoken to you and you want to share that with the group, write that on those index cards. You can write more than one if you'd like. And after this overview, like 10 minutes from now, uh, you just hold your card up and Pastor Lindsay or Pastor Gretchen will come find it. We're probably not going to have time for everybody's questions, but even just you sharing them with us as a staff allows us to spend some more time wrestling with them. Uh, okay, does this make sense? Are we ready to go? Kids, you're with us today too. It's an all-church Sunday, so if you have a question, and it can be about anything related to the Bible or God, then we would welcome that also, because we are happy with surprises, 
even in the questions, turns out the entire book of Acts feels like one big surprise as well. So, you ready? Let's get going. Okay. The book of Acts, this is the first book that takes place after the Gospels. So the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then you have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is sort of like part two to the book of Luke, often understood as coming out of the same tradition and community. And it's what happens after Jesus is raised from the dead on Easter as the church is getting started. Uh, so the first thing that happens in the book of Acts is everyone's gathered with Jesus, these uh, early disciples, and they ask them, like, is it time for the kingdom of Israel to be restored? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know, uh, but... All power and authority is being given to you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost and sends out these early disciples and then the church that they begin to form to bear witness to the story of Jesus that has sort of exploded on the scene. But there are a few things in the background that are happening in Acts 2. One of them is this idea of diaspora. So diaspora is a funny kind of word. You might be most familiar with it uh, regarding Judaism before there was the state of Israel. Uh, diaspora is the reality that you are not where you belong as a people. Um, so, like, in fact, right now we're in the middle of a ton of human migration. And so there are all kinds of communities that are living in a diaspora reality. Uh, think about folks who are fleeing, like, civil war or unrest or economic depressions around the world as those folks from Central and South America migrate up uh, toward opportunities in our country. Or you see it a lot in Europe as folks are moving out of some of those war-torn areas like Syria. These are diaspora realities. Uh, whenever everyone gets displaced, when you leave a place, you uh, leave all the culture, you leave your rituals, your traditions, what you leave, what you might lose is your memory. Terry was our volunteer of the month today. And Terry's been here for quite a while. And if I asked him, like, name some of the biggest moments that have happened in this room for you. Uh, worship services, relationships that you've found, friendships, moments of pain that you've brought into this space. Like, over time, this room activates memory for folks who've spent a lot of time in this space. Uh, if we just sort of left and lost all of this, there's a chance that you end up losing your connections to those stories as well. So diaspora is the reality in the book of Acts because the Jewish people at the time had been spread out for quite a while, and at some point they had gathered back together in what was known as the Promised Land, as the Holy Land, uh, but they had never really been in charge since they had come back. First it was the Greeks, then it was the Romans. So even though they're home, they're not exactly home. And one of the questions that's always being asked is how do you remain faithful whenever all of the signposts have been pulled down? Diaspora makes it very hard to remain faithful because you don't have as much control over your life, your worship, your religion as you hope to. The reason that diaspora is a really important space for us to hold as we think about the book of Acts is because uh, in a lot of ways, Christians are moving into a diaspora season, even in our own country here. For a long time, it was like a privileged state to be a Christian. You get tax breaks, all those sort of things. You put the church in the middle of the city. But as 
cultures are shifting and changing, and as the church has abdicated its responsibility over the last couple hundred years in a lot of ways, it has lost that kind of space of privilege. Um, And so what does it mean to be faithful to the story we've been handed? Remember, we can't claim necessarily a sort of privileged position in, in society. So diaspora, it forces communities into a very natural sort of posture. And that posture looks something like this, right? Like fists ready, you're kind of in a stance. Uh, it moves you into protectionism, tribalism, really solidifying your own kind of identity as a group. You see this in the book of Acts when the religious leaders keep coming up to these early disciples and saying, you can't do that. Because if you do that, it's going to disrupt what is already a really tenuous reality for us. You see this sometimes even in our own, if I, as I mentioned, kind of Christendom shifting. Um, anytime one more thing seems to be a removed privilege for Christians, there's this sense that like we are going to lose all of our identity if we're not allowed to do A, B, or C. And so there's kind of protectionism, this huddling that happens, cloister effect. The book of Acts recognizes that this is happening. It's even sympathetic to this tendency. However, it offers a different anecdote to diaspora, which is this expansive belonging. So rather than sort of draw ranks and throw up walls, the Spirit keeps forcing and pushing these early disciples to open up the story. It's not containable. And so rather than to try to protect, what if you just shared? What if you were generous with this story, with the rest of creation? Now that causes all kinds of problems, and we've talked about that over and over again across the weeks. One thing that came out in a lot of my study that I I revisited this week from Willie Jennings' uh, commentary on Acts is this quote. And I love this because it's true and I didn't quite realize it. Almost no one is doing what they want to do. Did you notice this? Each time this new thing happens in the book of Acts, it it happens because the Spirit forces it to happen. Like Paul was not going to go and and witness to or preach to or be kind to uh, Gentiles seeking after uh, the resurrected Christ. In fact, his job was to persecute folks out of his own community, uh, Jewish believers, That wasn't going to be a thing his life was aiming toward. It's not natural that that ended up being his story. But the Spirit shows up, blinds him, sends him off to the disciples. And he's going a place he did not want to go. I can't imagine that Stephen was really excited to preach to all of those angry folks about Jesus and to tell them what he is seeing that ends up in his own death. But something is driving him into those spaces. Can you imagine if the Ethiopian eunuch had shown up without the spirit urging, if he would have found the waters of baptism? Right? There is something happening in the book of Acts. I've asked our staff to hold on to, and I've asked you to hold on to as well, which is a sense of expectation that God is still doing things, and that God's doing things will change us, will send us in places we didn't know we were supposed to be going. And there's got to be this kind of um, 
like trust and relaxed posture about God's spirit, or you end up in this kind of resistance space. Because this expansive belonging, uh, it turns out that part of the project of Acts is an interweaving of peoples and stories and histories and places. So it's not simply that like, and remember, this belief in Jesus as Messiah started off as a Jewish reality inside of Judaism. And this idea that Gentiles had access to this story too is a novel idea that had to get worked out in real time and place. And so always the question is, what are Gentiles going to be like whenever they move into the family of God, known as Judaism, by way of the promises and the work of Christ? Are they going to change to be no longer Gentiles, but now they're going to be converted Jews? How are these two groups going to fit together? There is only, you know, 200 give or take people in here, and there are a lot, a lot of stories in this room. And I know Gretchen, Lindsay, Leslie, Mary, we all know the difficulty of interweaving your stories together and your own paths with God in a way that makes sense for a community that's trying to hold together. Uh, It's beautiful when it works, but there are times where interweaving creates new kinds of tensions. It's always been that way. So the temptation, when someone shows up in a faith community, for instance, the temptation, because we want them to belong, and the assumption is the quickest way to get somebody to belong is to teach them the rules of the family, the rules of the house. Uh, and so the language we use for this is assimilation. Uh, that you, if you're a newer person in church, I'm not going to pick on you if you're newer. Uh, let's see who I could make squirm or cry. Um, is to invite you to flatten off those edges that are a little bit different from this community. Uh, to teach you how we kind of walk, how we talk, our accent, our theological convictions. We do all of that here, but we never want to do that at the expense of who you are as a child of God. It's always an invitation, but assimilation is often the way that belonging happens whenever there's a powerful person, position, or institution, and there's somebody who's trying to gain access to it. If you wanted to be in Rome, it was probably a good idea to be a citizen. It was definitely a good idea to pay taxes. It was probably helpful if you worshiped the emperor. All of these things assimilated you to be a good citizen. What do you notice in the book of Acts, though? What I notice is that those early disciples, they're the ones that do the bending. They're the ones that do the leaning in. You remember Peter on the roof getting the vision? And all of the food, and it all comes down on the sheet, and the voice says, like, take and eat. And Peter says, I can't eat that food. I've never eaten that food. That's against my faith. And the voice says, take and eat, over and over again. And what Peter realizes is that God is inviting him to bend, to imagine. And so Peter does. He goes back to the community. He says, like, I got this vision. God said. This voice told me. And the invitation is to shared common life. Peter changes, makes space in his own heart and his own reality for this community that is being born. Now the last piece that's kind of hovering in the background, and that's the way of empire or the way of the church. So assimilation is the language of empire. Shared common good is the language of the church, the gathered community of believers.
the way order is understood, is created, is through power, and if necessary, through violence. This is why Romans were really good at killing people, including crucifixions. The way of peace, the way of grace, generosity, the way God's kingdom shows up is through sacrifice, through not taking up the sword. This is the way of the church. You see over and over again in the book of Acts these clashings of the power structures at the time in the early church as it claims the power and authority of God, which means they should be able to do whatever they want, take any land that they want, but that's not the way that this story is going. So you have all of this kind of swirling and these tensions. At the end of the book of Acts, you have Paul in front of the emperor making his case in chains. You have Paul, most of the rest of the time, he is alive, moving from like prison cell to prison cell. So you see the way that the Jesus story comes into conflict with the powers that be. The book of Acts launches us out in this kind of anticipatory state where these churches are growing and they're sprouting, these new believers are coming to faith. But in the midst of all of this kinetic energy is a ton, a ton of tension. When the gospel shows up here, there, in your own heart, in your own family, it is often not a settling reality. It is a stirring and dynamic reality. The thing, the invitation is always to be calm in the midst of that unsettling, to not be afraid about what's happening inside. So, if you haven't been with us this entire time, I do always recommend when we start a book of the Bible to study together that we read it through one entire time in one sitting. If you haven't done that yet, go back into Acts and, and read it and just see where you find yourself, where you find our country, where you find this church in that story. Uh, maybe do that again if you've already done that exercise together. But now I want to stop for a second, and I want to invite. A lot of times in preaching, it's just one person speaking. I've come in here with a set agenda about all the things I can't wait to teach you most Sundays, right? But what would it be like if we offered some space for you to speak? What you're hearing, where God is moving. If God's spirit is real and dynamic and active, then it has to be true that God's spirit is telling you something and you something and you something if we're listening and that that spirit might teach us all something if we speak together about what we're hearing. So we're going to ask some questions together. This is a bad question. Turns out there are such things as bad questions. I don't know why teachers say there's no such thing as bad questions. Uh, Questions that are antagonistic. Questions that are... uh, agenda-driven and not driven by curiosity, questions that are meant to be violent. These are not great questions. It's okay to kind of feel through, but we always want to ask better questions. A great question can move us forward in a way that kind of a stale and lifeless one just never could. So the questions we're looking for feel like this. Uh, Not like this, but like this. We can do that. So I've already got a few questions because folks were kind enough to send them in early. Um, But I'm going to open it up for just a couple of minutes of um, prayer and silence for you to jot something down if you have something that's kind of stuck with you through these sermons or through your own reading or through your own living. If this is your first time with us, then it might be a question about something that happened this morning with you and God and worship, and that's okay too. Um, But let me pause for two minutes. Two minutes is a long time, but we can do it. Two minutes. And then uh, we'll open it up. If you have a question ready, just hold your hand up. And uh, Pastor Gretchen and Pastor Lindsay will come find them and, uh, and gather those together. Okay?
minute and a half, two minutes. If you've got one, hold it up. At some point, one of our pastors will find you. Uh, I'm going to pray for you for this time, and then we're going to keep going together. Okay? said no trick questions. And Gretchen and Lindsay are going to sort through these a little bit for us um, so that we, you're going to ask questions that are similar to your neighbors sometimes. So we may try to conflate those a little bit um, and be able to speak to some of that at once. If I, um, there may be a time where I invite someone else to maybe offer something into this. So um, I'm going to pass this to our pastor so that they can ask them as they've sorted them. Do we need to go with one of the ones we have right now, or do we have something in here that we can get going with? Oh, I've got to trust Gretchen and Lindsay as well with this. Okay, so what do you, do you want me to go over here, or do you want to go? Oh, sorry, I'm reading through the questions. Okay. There's another one over here. I can grab some. Do you have one? Oh, John. I'll read you. I'm going to look at yours first, and then if it's, uh, I'll email you about it. actually you know what we're going to start with yours all right so you asked why was paul the subject of the murder plots what do you what do you mean to this question tighten it up for me a little um well uh he kept pleading for his life with the various authorities Mm -hmm. there were people that said we're not going to eat or drink until he's dead yeah like a lot of people yeah uh and what was it about him Mm -hmm. that was Leading people to have that such a strong reaction. Yeah. Yeah, so so uh, John's question here is why was Paul the subject of so much animosity from the teaching and preaching of the gospel? Why is he the one that keeps getting put in jail, keep having death threats against him? It's a great question. I have a couple of thoughts. One is uh, I mean he's like the newest betrayer of the story. Because as a good rabbinical Jew, a teacher, he knows the history and the tradition, to move into a space of uh, Jesus as Messiah is to put yourself at odds with some version of your other story, of your founding story. Um, Have you ever watched a family fight? Oh, like you think that your fights at work are difficult? Watch what happens at like a funeral at a wedding whenever things get tense. So some of this is just what a family fight looks like. And Paul is like the biggest betrayer of the family story. Um, I think that's a big, a big piece of it. I also, Paul is, at least in my reading of Paul, and it's taken me a while to kind of love Paul, because I'll be honest, a lot of my own uh, grappling with the stories in the New Testament, Paul comes off as annoying. Uh, it's okay. He can take it. But... Uh, Paul is like zealous, right? When he's on the uh, murderous side of the equation, he's like really good at being murderous and persecuting the churches. But when he sort of switches to the Jesus side of the story, it's still Paul, and he's still got all that fire and zeal, and he talks to people often like quite directly. There's this one point when he's trying to convince the emperor to convert, and the emperor's like, hold the phone. Like, are you trying to sell me on this story? And Paul says, listen, I would love it more than anything if you wanted to be just like me except for these chains. I mean, 
Like you have to have a certain amount of swagger to say something like that to the emperor while you are in chains. So, I mean, part of me wonders if like Paul wasn't just, wasn't asking for it. That's probably not the holiest of answers. But you know what else it says too, various, various spots in the New Testament is that, uh, Paul is late to the, to the story, right? He is a, he meets Jesus on the road after the resurrection, but well after the disciples. He says he's like one born later than the rest. And there is a sense in which he's going to have to learn kind of in a hurry what suffering for Jesus looks like. And uh, all these other folks, Peter and James and John, like they've been at this for quite a while. And so it's almost like he's cramming like a semester's worth of uh, holy suffering into like a two-week Jan session, if that makes any sense. Okay, another question. We have a couple. Oh, no. Okay. What you got? <laughs> we have a lot. Um, so this is these, no fun. <laughs> so these two are related, but I'll read each separately. So one is when you hear that little voice in your head is that God, maybe related would be the early church often experienced visions and visitations, i.e. angels. Do these experiences still occur today? Okay, so the first question is when you hear that little voice, could it be God? God? And the second one is, like, say that last one again, and sure. I'm going to try and hold the these The early two church together. often experienced visions and visitations by angels. Do these experiences still occur today? Oh, okay. Woof. Um, I love y'all. <laughs> so. Let me ask the question to you all, because part of what I want to see in this time together is the way that we are all sort of diving deep into this space. Uh, So when you hear that little voice, and for whoever this question is asking, whoever's asking this question, um, how do you know when that voice is God? I, I know times in my own life when that inner voice sometimes, sometimes just like a nudge, it's almost like your insides have a lean to them, have like a a gravitational pull, not even spatially or temporally, but like into this realm where you can feel and sense God. It's kind of like, trust me and go with me into this space. Um, that I've been able later in life to claim as God speaking or, or reaching or, or nudging. Um, but I'm going to ask the, the group here and for you to offer, have there been times when for you in your own life, if you have heard, sensed, felt the voice of God, whether like acutely, I mean, it just was as loud as it could be while I was praying at five in the morning, or very gently and subtly, where you didn't know until months or years later that was actually God's nudging in your life, or in a dream, or maybe in you're in that in-between wake and sleep state where you're kind of a little bit more open. If you've experienced God's presence and God's leading and nudging in that way, would you just would you offer your hand raised? For whoever's asking this question, um, I would love for them to see that there are times uh, when God's people have felt God's presence in a way that is visceral and real. Um, part of, okay, you can put your hands down, thank you. Part of the beauty of the book of Acts is that we are called to bear witness to. Um, so that when folks 
get a sense, a hint, a glimpse of this story. There are others who've been a little bit further down the road. When Paul has his moment on the Damascus Road of conversion, first thing he does is he goes and he spends some time with disciples who've been at this for a little bit longer. Uh, and they sort of sharpen his vision. Uh, the other part of that question, I think, is, if, if, is there a willingness to believe that God still speaks to you? And that, that belief that God is still active and engaged is sometimes all that's needed to receive what God is offering. There is sometimes a cynicism that sets in that says, like, these things don't happen anymore um, that I think creates its own kind of dissonance with God's spirit. I know it has for me. I could say a lot more about that one, but I know you've got some others in the group. Yeah. Sure. So this is a multi-part one. Uh, could anyone receive the Holy Spirit according to the Pharisees and the high priests back in the day? And is Jesus in the Holy Spirit for everyone today? Why is Jesus important for the Gentiles? Can I see it? Okay. Oh, you did a great job of reading this. This is written like a a mind cloud uh, or sort of like a... This is also an artist. Could anyone receive the Holy Spirit? Why was Jesus important to the Gentiles So let me just offer this a little bit of language about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the everyone versus the few and what Jesus is, why the story of Jesus moves out of its family boundaries of Judaism and into the rest of the world. I've said before that my own kind of deep understanding of sin at work in us is that which destroys or disrupts uh, relational belonging uh, with God, with humanity, with creation, and with yourself. And that fracturing happens to everyone. The story of Judaism, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the story of of God in kind of the micro with one family and then one nation working out the healing of that original rift of all of that falling out of belonging. It was always meant, though, to be the healing in one space for the healing in other spaces. This is how blessing works. This is how grace works. This is how justice works. It's never supposed to stop. It's not uh, like God's people are receptacles for God's gifts, but we are stewards of. And so uh, the Jewish people, and this is still true, the tikkun olam, the, to, to repair the world or to heal the world, is still a tradition that's practiced. And part of what you're seeing in the book of Acts is Jesus, this Jesus story being carried out of that original container of Judaism and into the rest of creation to make good on that original promise that God's people are those who bless the rest of the world. And so Jesus could never stay contained in one space, in one place, or with one people. This is crazy important for us today because there are times when any of us could assume that... uh, The goal is to contain, to name, and then to control the Jesus story. But part of what we see in the book of Acts with the Gentiles, and by the way, we are, most of us, save like Perlman here and some others, the Gentiles, the ones who were born later, the ones who were grafted in after the fact, the ones who found ourselves in a family we did not expect to belong to. Um, Jesus overflows the container, but the container was always meant to be a sort of pass-through reality. Um... That, to me, is like the deep understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures leads us to 
this kind of overflow of God's generosity and God's wide, wide family. The, the prophets had talked about that for quite a while, though. Okay, what else we got? And what time we have to be done? Let's just say what time we need to be done with this so that we know. Okay, 20 till. We got a little bit of time. Okay. 12 minutes. All right. Um, so Acts recounts how after Pentecost, the Spirit of God launched the church to include Jews and Gentiles as one new profound body of Christ. Why did this merger eventually fail? That is, why did the church become a Gentile-only entity? What happened to the Jewish Christians? You laugh because you don't want to cry. This is true. Um, in a lot of ways, the history of Christianity and the church can be understood as a set of failings to make good on the promises offered in Christ. Now, that is one history that is interwoven with the history of individual, communal, tribal healing and salvation, right? It's not simply a tragedy, but it's also tragedy and comedy and farce, to use the language of Beekner. Um, but the project in the book of Acts and the project for Paul in those letters to the early church and most of the New Testament are letters to these early faith communities, is how do you hold together these two groups with competing agendas and allegiances and stories, and then when it all get mixed together, how does the sinner hold? And what we know is that the sinner doesn't hold. For a lot of like Protestant evangelical Christians these days, uh, Jewish people are seen as utilities for some kind of former, like, moving along expediency toward the end times. But not necessarily understood as partners with. Uh, people in synagogue yesterday, or people at Shabbat service on Friday nights, um, the way Jesus understands those folks is it's part of his family and part of our family. But it's become very hard for us to understand that original intention and reality. Now, one of the things that happened, just like to get really nuts and bolts about it, is uh, the Jewish people had a sense of like, we would really like to no longer be oppressed by the Romans. And they kept fighting back and pushing back and pushing back. And at some point around 66 to 70 in the common era, uh, there's the revolt and then there's a squashing of the revolt. The temple is burned down in 66. All of the religious leaders are thrown out. This becomes the, the fall of the second temple. And any kind of Judaism you see today is directly tied to the crumbling of Second Temple Judaism around the first hundred years of, of Christ. Uh, and in that crumbling, uh, the Jewish people became a bit outlawish to Rome, and Christians thought, oh no, those folks are getting in a lot of trouble with the empire. Maybe we should go stand in this corner over here. And so you start to see the separating out of these two communities partly for survival and partly because uh, the sinner just doesn't hold. You have various versions of the story inside of Christianity after the split between Jews and Gentiles. You have the split between East and West. You have the, Every time there's a council and they begin to vote on a thing, part of the voting on a thing is so that one group is no longer welcome and one group is understood as official. Um, but let me just hold open for a second the tenderness with this question. It's one that I think we are called to acknowledge and to confess and to continue to struggle with. Are we familiar with the term pogrom? These are when great moments of violence erupt against Jewish communities 
And do we know when some of the largest moments of pogroms were? They were the high holy days of Christianity, particularly Good Friday. Because over time, this term blood libel gets applied to what happens in Christ's death, because we're always looking for someone to blame, and it can't be us. And so part of the confession is the way that we have assuaged some internal anxiety as Christians by naming Jewish brothers and sisters as enemy. Maybe that's not today, but it's not too far from yesterday. Um, So thank you for whoever asked this question and the invitation it pulls us into. Um, I'll say this is part of why I love interfaith work that we do in the area, why I love to spend time with clergy outside of my own tradition, um, because I'm not always aware of the wounds and the scars that are born from bad versions of that partnership in the past. Um, and listening, I think, is important. I don't actually have an answer for this except for I'm trying to listen with you. Okay. What does it mean to spread the gospel in our community when most people around us have already heard of Jesus? <laughs> That's a great question. Okay, so what's the point of telling the Jesus story when everybody's already got the Jesus story? Um, let's just say this. Oh, hmm. How honest do I want to be today? <laughs> Um, God is still converting me to faith and trust in Christ. And when Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospels, it is to his own people, the Jews, that he goes to preach. And often it's the religious leaders who need the most reassessing and renegotiating their versions of faith. What we have in our culture is Christendom. What we have in our culture is mostly civil religion. You were born with it, your grandmother had it, so you do it. You take communion once a month, you show up at church at least on Easter and Christmas, and every time your grandmother's in town so she doesn't know you don't go otherwise. But following Jesus is like a whole different thing. And I've met like three people in my life who I think are like full in, and I'm not one of them. So, what is the purpose of preaching the gospel if everyone around you already knows the story of Jesus? This story has never been about a set of knowledge. It has always been about a reconciling reality born out of the knowledge that the dead have been raised in Christ. So the message that we have been given, and Paul says this in his second letter to the church in Corinth, the message that we have been given is the message of cuddlegate, of reconciliation. I, do you all feel as though creation is reconciled to itself? Does it feel like our communities are reconciled to themselves? When I talk to my friend Harlan about Northwest Pasadena and south of the 210, does it feel reconciled? Does politics feel reconciled? Does the fact that we have homes that are middle class at a million dollars and then we have multiple folks asking for money on the streets because they can't afford rent. That does not feel reconciled. The fact that a lot of Christians trust Caesar more than Christ reconciled. In so many ways, my own interior and exterior life is in no way conformed to the image and pattern of Christ. And neither is yours. That's part of why you're here struggling week after week. 
It's a great, great question. So much of the time, Jesus turns into a mascot. So much easier to brand and sell a mascot. But one of the realities that you're presented with in the book of Acts, and every one that I've read and everything I've seen and I've felt in me, is that this is a story that is still being realized in the moment. And so there's still work for us to do. Thank you for this question. Um, one, one, two more? One more. In what ways do you wish that FBC would look more like the Church of Acts? The Church of Acts? Oh, okay. Um. <laughs> In what ways do we hope and wish that our congregation looked more like the Church of Acts? I don't actually know if I want to look like the Church of Acts sometimes because they did not always get along. And there was all of the same kind of tensions. One of the things I love about the Bible is how honest it is. I mean, it's honest about the communities that Christ calls and the complications and the struggles. Sometimes we want to reach for that perfect period in history when things were working like they were supposed to work. And if we can just get back to that period, then God's kingdom will be realized. And you have different versions of this story about how to make the present great like the past. Can feel what I'm leaning into here? Um, and for our congregation, maybe it was the 30s and 40s when the church thought, you know what, we should probably build a building for 2,000 people on a Sunday morning. Because that's going to be the future forever. Um, there are not 2,000 people here today. So maybe it was the 30s and 40s. Uh, maybe it was the early church. Back then, that's when they got it. Underneath this question, at least the way I'm hearing it, is a hope that the spirit present in the book of Acts is a spirit present here today. And if we believe that, trust that, lean into that, then we should also expect to go places we don't want to go, to welcome people we didn't expect to welcome, to trust God's leading even when it's scary. I actually think that we do this all the time. In a lot of ways, in a lot of really meaningful ways, this church is trying to be the church of Christ, which is all that's being asked of the early church in the book of Acts. The question evidences the reality that we are yearning and leaning. And I think that's all that can be asked of us. Um, do we have an imagination To love who God loves. I wrote one question down that I want to read because it reminds me a little bit of this question. If someone came to us from the outside, outside our story, our family, and our tradition, and said, what will you do if I join you at the body of Jesus and fall in love with your God and fall in love with you? I love this question. Because honestly, I think I know how you would answer that question. What are you going to do if I join you with the body of Christ and fall in love with your God and fall in love with you? Will there be space for me, for my story, my history, my memories? 
Um, what can we do to be more like the book of Acts, the church of Acts? Uh, I think to feel in that question a sense of delight and not a sense of fear. I do pick up in the early disciples, in those early leaders especially, a kind of tenacity, persistence, grit, and just like fearlessness of anything except God. Yeah, if we could do that, I think we would be on the way. We're out of time. For now. Um, How are we going to be the church that God imagines and hopes and dreams of? Well, I don't know yet. We're going to figure that out together. You just heard just a sliver of questions that you all are carrying with you. And there's some that you have that you didn't ask. Part of what I want you to hear in the questions is the yearning, the desire, and the delight. That this is not a dead story, but it is alive and active. And that you are finding yourself in it. And that in meaningful, real, and visceral ways, God's spirit is still moving, pushing, and prodding. Somebody here showed up in the last month, year, two, maybe the first time ever, feeling themselves drawn into the Jesus story. And they've stayed in this community long enough to understand how we're telling that story together. Sometimes we tell it in preaching. Sometimes we tell it in singing and in worship, in prayer. Sometimes we tell it with these physical acts like we're about to engage in with communion. Part of the gospel, part of living in relationship with God and with one another is to embrace a sense of mystery. That sometimes there aren't clear answers, but simply the invitation to take the next step. Communion is one of these acts where all that's really required is humility and a willingness to receive. That there are ways that you receive the story of God's love that don't pass straight through your brain, but pass through your body through that more visceral and intimate part of you. And so those questions that are unresolved, leave them unresolved and feel no tension or anxiety because of it. Know that God is not confused or scared or impatient, but is continually making room for you and for me and all of us. Communion here in our congregation we uh, open the table up at least once a month, the first Sunday of the month. And this is one of the spaces where we enact what we say. Where we all receive the same bread and the same cup. We all receive the same promise. That there is space at God's table and God's story for you. And so if you're a congregation member, if you've been here for 30 years, if you're Terry Braun and you just got volunteer of the month, or if this is your first Sunday with us, if you're never coming back again because this church or any church is just too much for you in this season, the table is still for you. Wherever you find yourself on your journey with Christ. If you have a lot of kids in it with us on first Sundays, 
and I always uh, leave that to parents, that if this is a meaningful practice for them to engage in, then they are more than welcome at the table. If they would like to come forward and just receive a blessing from one of our pastors or deacons, they are willing to do that too. Um, they can come forward. In other traditions, uh, often they'll just cross their chest as a way to say, I'm here for a blessing, but, but not necessarily for the bread and the cup, and that's okay as well. We receive a story, but we receive a pattern of life. And so Jesus, toward the end of his time with his disciples, gathered with them in an upper room. It was before his suffering and his death, at Passover, that he set, he took bread, and he broke it. And giving thanks, he said that this is my body, which is broken for you. So take and eat. And as often as you do, remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So take and drink. And as often as you do, remember me. The invitation in the book of Acts, the invitation this morning, the invitation for you at noon tomorrow, wherever you find yourself, moving forward through life, is to name and claim all that belongs to God and bring it into sacred relationship with its creator. And whether that is bread and cup, whether that is Jew or Gentile, God is claiming and waiting to receive. There's this point in the book of Acts when they're in prison and one of these followers of Jesus breaks bread and serves them and gives thanks and says that even in this space the story is being told. I'm going to ask the deacons at this time if y'all would come forward. We're going to have three stations. 